Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a special conversation with Lily Brett and guest host Erwin Keller as they discuss text, Jews, and rock and roll. So I wanted to welcome you all to the inaugural event of the New School in Katadi. The New School is a program of Commonweal. Commonweal is a nonprofit that's based in Bolinas. It's an institution that does healing and research and advocacy and learning in the areas of education and the arts, health and healing, and environment and justice. Commonweal's been around for 40 years, and the New School was a program that was started about seven, eight years ago. And at this point, there have been 200 or maybe even more podcasts that are all on the Commonweal website, which is tns.commonweal.org, with all kinds of people in all kinds of subjects. Michael Pollan was talking um, just this summer. Peter Coyote was out there. Um, philosophers, thinkers, healers, shepherds, a lot of different people come. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to, um, what's your name again? Erwin <laughs> Keller, um, the rabbi here at Ner Shalom that's going to be leading the interview today. Thank you. I feel so naked-headed. Oh, yes. I usually have uh, something on my kepala here. So I, I would like to welcome all of you to the new school at Commonweal, Sonoma County branch, coming to you from Katadi, California. Um, and uh, I am Erwin Keller, and I am really thrilled to have my friend Lily Brett here tonight. I'm going to do a little introduction, okay? Right. So you have to sit here and listen to this. Okay. Okay. So uh, during World War II, um, Lily's parents, Max and Rose, um, survived six years in the Lodz ghetto in Poland before being taken to Auschwitz, where they were separated from each other. And they both survived, and it took them six months to find each other again after the war. Um, and Lily was born in a displaced persons camp in Germany, where she lived the first two years of her life, speaking German and Yiddish. And then arriving in Melbourne, Australia, uh, where she started school with other Jewish kids in a school, what is it called, Bialik? In the Bialik, Bialik school. Um, and began learning English, really, once you, were, once you moved into public school. Um, when Lily was 18, she was hired as a writer for GoSet. Was that the first one? Yes. For GoSet, which is a rock and roll magazine in Australia, um, for which the only required journalistic qualification was having a car. <laughs> And Lily did have a car, so she got the job. Um, and uh, surprisingly, she had writing talent anyway. Um, and in this early career, Lily traveled internationally, interviewing scores of musicians, including eventual legends such as Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and Mick Jagger. Lily also hosted a pop music TV show in Australia called Uptight. <laughs> Australians did not understand what uptight meant. They thought it was having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> uptight, all right. Um, and so in 1989, Lily moved to New York City with her husband, the painter David Rankin, who we're happy, whom we're happy to have with us tonight. Um, and uh, at this moment, at current count, Lily has published seven volumes of poetry, three collections of essays, and six novels. A stage adaptation of her novel, You Gotta Have Balls, called Chutzpah in German. Maybe we should talk at some point about the naming and what it was like for that title to get translated to Chutzpah. 
which you could have called it originally, and we would have understood. Chutzpah. Only you. <laughs> Only me. Anyway, uh, a stage version premiered in Vienna in 2012, um, and then uh, when was it in Hamburg last year? This year. This year. And uh, is heading to Berlin soon. Her most recent novel, Lola Bensky, won France's coveted Prix Médicis Étranger last year. Um, and I first met Lily uh, in 2001, in the fall of 2001, when I was performing in um, New York in an off-Broadway show with the Kinsey Six, which uh, Lily had the misfortune of going to see. And, and then she had the additional bad taste of hiring us to perform at a party um, at their home. I think we closed, I think it was like closing night or something. We were, we were miserable and sad. That's right. And you had us at your beautiful loft to perform. And ever since that time, um, it's felt like I've had one long conversation with Lily whenever we see each other. Um, and I was really happy that she was going to be in town and could be part of this initial night of new school talk in Sonoma County so we could keep talking the way we always do and preserve it a little bit for posterity and offer it to the rest of the world. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Lily Brett. <clears throat> Lily just got, I, I, you know, um, I might do my questions in a different order because, um, you know, whenever I'm with Lily, I have a, a sense of showing a tourist around. You know, I have a sense of, of you being a bit of a stranger, even when we're in your home turf. Now, tonight, Lily, um, we, we had dinner at Redwood Cafe, and it turned out that they were debuting karaoke night. And... And this was Lily's first time ever experiencing karaoke, <laughs> even though she's been in the U.S. for since 26 years. 26 years. So, so um, I'm not sure I'll go back. <laughs> so let me ask, so let me just ask you this. You know, there's something um, about your having been born in a in a DP camp, in a displaced person camp, and then being sort of the Jewish kid ultimately in an all-Gentile school in a country where your parents were immigrants, and then being the Jewish girl on TV doing the rock and roll stuff. The bad Jewish girl. The bad Jewish girl. And then ending up being the Australian writer living in New York, whose work is getting produced on stage in Germany. I mean, do you, do you experience your life as being that of, of displacement? Well... I do in, in many ways feel that, not simply because of the moves I've made, but that I think it's very hard for me to feel at home anywhere. People ask me, where do I feel most at home? And it's never a location. It's always with a person or people. So I have found it very difficult to be attached to a country um, when people find out I was born in Germany, they're delighted to hear that I'm German until I explain DP camp, <laughs> refugees to Australia. Um, and I don't feel an allegiance to a country. I feel an enormous allegiance to people I love and to causes. But um, it wasn't my moving around at all. You know, I kept, I moved a lot because I kept thinking there 
the real world was somewhere else. And in my parents' house, the real world was with the dead. My mother had four brothers, three sisters, a mother, father, aunties, uncles, nephews, nieces, and every single one of them was murdered. And when I think about my growing up, it was so soon after all of this, and that's without mentioning what actually actually happened to my mother <clears throat> and my father. And so... I always felt the real world was not where I was but was somewhere else and unfortunately that somewhere else was gone. But I didn't realise that until I was much older, you know, that European jury was gone. <coughs> you and I share um, uh, a preoccupation with pre-Shoah Jewish Europe. I don't know that it's a preoccupation. I think it's a very intense connection. Um, I mean, preoccupation has a sort of a judgment attached to it, and I think it's a very intense connection. You know, I know that the world I was born into ha has gone, and one of the few places that I feel closest to that world seems strange to many people, but it is in the death camps of Poland. And that's where I really feel that's where they all died and that's the only place on earth where I have. I came from two huge families. Um, and Prominent families. Yes, wealthy families. Um, I should have been a Polish princess. Um no, they were, they were very wealthy families. They were big families. They were cohesive families, very close to each other, and there were so many of them. And then there was just me and my f mother and my father, and I was supposed to be a substitute, but one person can never be a substitute. Um, and... My mother's head was always with her past. So very hard to, and also all her dreams evaporated, my father's dreams evaporated. He was a wealthy playboy and then they were both working in factories in Australia while I was in Jewish daycare. So it was a very difficult time for my parents and really never stopped being a difficult time for them. Your father, Kenahori, is still living. He's 99. Um, I know, amazing. And you brought him over how long ago from Australia to live in New we York? We brought him over about 10, 12 years ago. Um, and he... <laughs> He arrived in Australia with one suitcase and came to New York with two and he said, see, progress. <laughs> <laughs> the experience of, of having your father at this age um, is, uh, is remarkable. And uh, you write about him or some fictionalized version of him a lot. A lot of your characters have a father much like him. 
Yes, um, my, my father's actually a lovely, lovely human being with a fabulous sense of humour and the only problem is that he, about four or five years ago, started to believe that everything I had written about him was true. <laughs> and even when I would explain to him, Dad, you know that we didn't do this, he'd said, yes, we did it. And he incorporated into his life story. When people asked him what he would do, what he had done, he would incorporate one of the stories from my books. And he truly, truly believed it. But it's very confusing having a writer in the family. And my children, I have three children who ask me, especially the youngest one, Lil, could you just tell us what's real, what really happened to us and what didn't? So, but um, my, my father... My father has been on book tours with me in Germany. He's, he's seen a lot of what I do with me. I mean, now that he's 99, he, um, there's a movie being made of one of my novels, Too Many Men, and my father would dearly love to play the lead role. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about Too Many Men. Um, the, that novel was the first of your novels that I read after I met you. And uh, it, uh, it involves a, a heroine named Ruth Rothwax who has an aging father. And uh, they take a trip together to Poland to visit where the family came from and to visit the death camps and to recapture some of their history, including some of their stuff. And um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about whether you and your father ever had that kind of experience together or whether this was something that you imagined in a healing kind of way? Well, firstly, the first thing I wanted to do in that book is I wrote a biography through the novel of Rudolf Hirsch, who was the commandant of Auschwitz for three years. And then I wanted to make it a trip with my father. And in real life, I had asked my father many times, would he come to Poland with me? And he always said, no, no, he didn't want to go. Until one year when we were living in New York and he was still in Australia and I said, I'm going to Poland again, he said, okay, pick me up on the way. <laughs> if you've got any sense of geography, you'll know. <laughs> I cannot pick him up on the way. <laughs> and so he came there and it was a very, very emotional trip because... I've been very unexpected. I mean, my father, I had never really seen him at home. I mean, in Australia, his English was very Polish English. There's a lot of comedy in the book around his English. I don't know if you've ever read, um, if anyone's ever read The, the Education of Hyman Kaplan. It, those kinds of misunderstandings um, run through Too Many Men and, uh, and the sequel to it. And in my father's real life, I mean, when fax machines came out, my father was enamoured of fax machines. He did not need one. And he carried it everywhere with him. If he left the house, he put it in the trunk of the car. But he insisted on calling it his fax machine. <laughs> and no matter how many times I explained to him, I said, fax. He said, that's what I'm saying. It's my fax machine. <laughs> But um, he, 
I said to him when we went to Poland that he did not have to go anywhere that I went or, or everywhere that I went because I thought it was going to be very rugged for him. And what I saw of him in Poland was I saw a man at home. He just got out the plane and he was at home. He, the language, I mean, his Polish is beautiful. All, all, all the Polish people around us said, oh, wow. And his Polish was also very formal because no local, no contemporary colloquialisms had crept in. He hadn't been there for decades. And he knew exactly where everything was. He was asking every taxi driver how much their Mercedes cost. And it was a, a very, very remarkable trip in many ways. And we went to Auschwitz together. And just standing under that Arbeit macht frei sign was so meaningful. It's such a small sign in real life and it looks so big and it is so big in terms of what it achieved, what it was the entrance to. But um, we went there and we both felt pretty shaky. And then he said to me, look at us. We love each other. We're okay. Let's go in. And in Birkenau, he, it was lightly snowing and he ran across the ice to show me where his barracks were where his latrines were, and he was running. And my father's always run very little footsteps, very fast. And I was yelling out to him, don't run. I said, you didn't die the last time you were in here. <laughs> Just be careful. So, you know, that part of the trip was, uh, you know, the non-fiction part of the fiction uh, most of the other things that happened were works of fiction, which my father refuses to believe. Were fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the novel, you were saying that, that you kind of wrote it in a way, um, that you wrote it as a mechanism for doing a biography of the Commandant of Auschwitz. And you work that into the book. I, I think it's not, is it a spoiler if I, if I explain how that works in the book? No. So Ruth, the uh, protagonist who's visiting Poland with her father, once she's on Polish soil, she begins to hear a voice. And it turns out that it is the voice of the ghost of, of Rudolf Hoss. And um, so here's the question. So I, I'm curious how that conceit came to you. And I'm also curious if you hear voices because... I know that, for instance, when I've done research work on family history, I've gone back to Poland, I feel sometimes like I am, like I have, there are voices leading me to the discoveries that I need to make. And I'm curious if, if that occurred to you because it was already something that was part of who you were. Well, I used that voice strategy because I wanted to make him appear to be a human being. I think it's a real mistake to think that um, major criminals, and in this case major Nazis, were monsters. I think um, I very much wanted to show that they were ordinary human beings like me and you, and therefore we are just as capable of doing what he did um, as he was. And I think it's too easy to dismiss... Um, 
criminal acts like that as just being carried out by a monster. Um, I felt his presence enormously. You know, I didn't hear him speak. I had to work hard to make him speak. Um, I had to write his dialogue for him. But um, I felt his presence all along and I felt I knew him. And I felt it was important to, you know, I portrayed him as, you know, a very hard working man. He was. He was a really good worker. It's just a bit unfortunate that his job was, you know, production of death. Um, and he was, as husbands go, not a bad husband. Um, and, you know, a relatively okay father. So it was very important to me to do that with him um, and to have him, I actually had him situated in hell and he was trying to graduate out of hell. <laughs> but he kept failing the courses that would take him out of hell. And what was that like for you to sort of live so intimately with, with him? Yeah, in writing. Well, it was very strange. Um, when I was writing him, I mean, I, I hold myself away in a tiny, tiny little cottage on Long Island and wanted to eat cabbage all day, every day. I said, well, I was in Poland. And I think, that, I think when you're writing about somebody, they really infiltrate your heart and your brain and when I finished the book, I thought I would be so happy that I finished, and I was, but I found myself walking along West Broadway in Manhattan thinking, I really miss Rudolph. Mm. And that struck me as very bizarre that I really missed him. Well, the intimacy between victims and captors is uh, famous. Yes. The... Um there's an element of, uh, of that novel, of Too Many Men. I've never told you this. Um, it's responsible for the fact that I write now that novel because Ruth uh, Rothwax, the, the protagonist, has a business. <laughs> I, I'm going to read you what uh, one reviewer said about this business. But she has a business writing letters for people who need something said, need something fixed, and they need someone to write it properly, to write it well, to write it so that it has the desired effect, and they don't trust themselves to do it. And um, so somebody wrote this. <clears throat> Too Many Men has, a wonderfully in, has many wonderfully ingenious aspects to it, not the least of which is the lovely idea that a woman could create a successful business based entirely on her ability to write letters for any and every occasion. This is not only a bit of acutely relevant social commentary on a lost art, it is also, for many of us, representative of the ultimate dream career. <laughs> it is a brilliant invention. And anyway, so I, I, in reading the novel, right, it, you end up, it's, it's, this is all happening in the background, right? Um, sort of backstory while we're seeing Ruth and her father in Poland. But we're hearing about different problems people came to Ruth with, um, desperate to get this fixed, and Ruth would write. And we would see, we would hear the problem, we would hear Ruth's thinking, and then we would see the letter. Um, and, and it made me so excited that, wow, you know, that there's so much, um, there is so much potential 
healing that can be done with language, including but not limited to written language. And we use language so carelessly and so hostily when it can be um, such medicine. And, um, and that's what made me feel like, oh, you know what, I'm going to write sort of the perfect paragraph about this, which I haven't achieved, but, but, it, <laughs> but it made me start. It, it's the th- it really is the thing that made me, made me start writing. I had never written before that, mm, before reading the novel. That's interesting. Um, but I'm also aware that, um, you know, there's, there's repetition in your work, in your novels. There are similar situations with similar characters happening differently each time, playing out differently each time. And I'm curious how much the writing is an exercise in healing, how much the writing is a medicine, and you keep changing the prescription to see how it will come out. Look, I've always thought that writing was not cathartic and didn't heal you except in the same way that doing something you love is very good for you. Mm. You know, I feel that you have to know, you, you have to know what you want to say and you have to be able to feel it and you have to have it sorted out before you write. But the act of writing is something so wonderful for me you know, you never quite know what's going to happen when you write and you never quite know what somebody in your book is going to do. And yet ultimately you have control over all of them and that's fabulous. <laughs> no other area of your life where if you don't want someone to say something, they don't say it. <laughs> and this way I am totally in charge you know, um, I think for me it's one of the most soothing things I can do and I'm not a person who's easily soothed. You know, when I write, I am so happy, you know, but I'm happy writing a shopping list. <laughs> uh, it's really pathetic and I take such care with my shopping lists. I I write them as though someone else is going to read them, which they never do. You know, I say, buy apples, dash, dried, in case I should think I meant fresh. Was it a relief to you to begin writing fiction? Did you always want to write fiction? No, no. I didn't didn't ever want to be a writer, which is a bit sad because almost everybody I know grew up desperate to be a writer. I grew up desperate to be slim. <laughs> so let's talk. Let's talk about food, um, because uh, and there are lots of ways we can talk about it. But there, but food is a big deal in all of your books, all the ones that I've read. Um, and uh, you know, we have a culture now where we have these foodie books. We have the Tuscany things and the Provence things, and and all the foodies read them, and we all want to read all the details about the food. And, and be inspired. And, and your um, books have so much detail about the food, but not, necessi- but not just the food that your character likes, also the food that your character doesn't like, the food that represents something that your character hates. And, you know, the trip through Poland, you know, it's every meal is described. And... Um, 
and I'm, I'd be interested in knowing your thoughts about that, but, but Ruth, the character, was very aware of everything she was eating, and we knew when she was happy and when she wasn't, and when the food helped and when it didn't. Well, also, I think food played, you know, food is a crucial element of everyone's life or we wouldn't be here. Um, but I think when food has been life and death in your family, there's an extra dimension to food that most people don't have. And I think um, one's attitude to food um, becomes different. And a lot of the food I've written about is how little food was allocated for Jews in the ghettos and the camps and how they were starving. Um, and then the subsequent, you know, my mother never wanted to run out of food. You're listening to a conversation with Lily Brett and Commonweal host Erwin Keller. And so, I mean, my mother told me that we... After Germany, we went to Paris because that was our route through back to Australia and we stayed at a very beautiful hotel in Paris called the Hotel Leticia. And it's now a five-star hotel. It's absolutely exquisite. But it was uh, before that Nazi headquarters in Paris. So this hotel has an incredible history. It housed the remnants of uh, the death camps, you know, the few remnants who survived death camps. And my mother said that every morning all the Jews would take every piece of bread from the dining room and stuff it in the cupboard. So from floor to ceiling, everybody's rooms would be full of bread. And so the food has always... There's been... um, a dimension to food in my life, you know, and a different aspect of it. You know, in the death camps, um, my mother said that anybody who had an ounce of flesh on them was doing something at someone else's expense. So my mother, you know, just uh, prided herself in being very, very slim. And slim was the height of of any compliment she could give you. You could have won the Nobel Prize for nuclear physics and my mother would have said, oh, fatty. (laughs) So, you know, food for me, and I've always liked it, I've always cooked a lot. Um, In You Gotta Have Balls, there's a meatball restaurant, which I wrote about years before all the meatball restaurants sprang up everywhere. (laughs) Are there in fact... Are there? They haven't reached here yet. Oh, my God. New York has a meatball shop, the meatball place, the meatball everything. The, um, your um, protagonist in Lola Bensky, Lola Bensky is the most recent novel and, and um, is about a young Australian Jewish reporter, uh, rock and roll reporter, um, interviewing all of these uh, rock and rollers. And there are other things I'm going to want to ask you about Lola later, but... So Lola is constantly aware of her weight, and she's always self-conscious about how she looks and imagining how she looks and imagining how she can diet and coming up with and dismissing diets in one thought while something else is happening. Um, How much was this an experience similar to your own, and uh, where does it come from in Lola, and how does that play out? Has that played out in your life? Well, Lola was, in fact, Lola was uh, living in London, New York 
LA and in California, in LA, um, in LA and in Monterey. Lola was at the Monterey Pop Festival. But Lola was, while interviewing everybody who was anybody, I mean, Monterey, she was sitting in, next to Janis Joplin and in front of Mama Cass. Lola was on a diet. And while Ravi Shankar was playing, Lola was writing down notes for a new diet. And so, and Lola's diets were always extreme and weird and unsuccessful. So, you know, I think that food, um, I think there are a lot of women have issues about food. And Lola's were exacerbated by a mother who kept herself very, very slim and wore a lot of bikinis. You, so, you said to me once that um, your mother said, um, um, fat and religion are the greatest sins. <laughs> oh, she would have thought that because they were, I mean, she really looked down on anyone who was overweight, which did not go, it just didn't gel with the rest of her character. She was incredibly tolerant and they were both... Um, very, very keen to spot any discrimination, any bigotry, but she couldn't understand that saying, huh, what a fatty, was as bigoted as anything else could be. And she was desperate. I was tall by the time I was 12, so I was too tall and too fat for her. And so hence the... Yes, my mother had a specialty for dinner. My father got really large meals and I got a grilled something and a piece of lettuce. Whatever it was was grilled and then there was half a plate of lettuce. And I think that for my mother, she lost just about everything she could lose. She lost her family she was a dearly loved child. She lost her dreams. She wanted to be a paediatrician. Um, she lost her education. She lost her youth. She lost her culture and she lost her language. So all she was left with was her beauty. And that um, played a very disproportionate role in her life. Um, and... It bled on to me. I was forever. I went to a school for gifted children, which had a lot of Jews in it in Australia. Um, and I spent my days uh, writing sets of names for the triplets I hope to have one day and endless diets and how many days I had to lose how many pounds. And they grew increasingly desperate. It would start off with 90 days to lose just 20 pounds. And then it would get down to five days to lose 20 pounds, which required drastic measures. Very hard to explain. I mean, there are some really sort of crackers elements of parenthood in general. Like parents do you know, unintentionally and with the best of goodwill, do crazy things to their children. I thought I was going to be perfection as a parent. <laughs> and, 
Absolutely far from it. My children have long lists of what I could have done better. <laughs> I hear the story and I just so want to go back and make things better for young Lily. <laughs> I wonder how much... Um, and I felt that with uh, Lola too. And, um, and I felt so happy for Lola becoming who she became, uh, really growing into herself. Um, I want to talk about sort of your process of growing into yourself uh, for someone who ended up a, such a, a prolific novelist and poet who didn't want to be a writer. Um, what did your parents think when you started writing for a rock and roll magazine? God, they thought it was terrible, <laughs> a tragedy. I mean, my father wanted me to be a lawyer, and he used to watch the American television series Perry Mason religiously. And every week he would say, you could be better than Perry Mason. <laughs> That's a high standard to live up to. <laughs> and he, he really saw me as his hope for making a difference in the world, striding into courtrooms and winning case after case and proving that, you know, we could do some good in the world. And here I was in Mick Jagger's apartment interviewing him. It didn't seem at all worthwhile. My father was actually very angry. He said to me, you are making people who've done nothing famous. And I said, hey, I'm not making them famous. <laughs> They're already well known. Um, so they were extremely disappointed. Well, A, they thought journalism wasn't a real job. You just had to have a pencil and typewriter. And they thought it wasn't a real job. And it was only after I left rock journalism and started writing profiles of people they thought were more important, <laughs> doctors, <laughs> lawyers, um, that they started to have a, a degree of reassurance. They still didn't think it was much of it. Um, but when I, I was very lucky, I won literary prizes very early in my career and they came with cash and my dad's always been impressed by cash. Did you, your, mother, your mother died, what, 30 years ago? 28 years ago when she was 64. Had you already yeah. published fiction at that point? Did your mother no, see any of your fiction? Just, no, I had just um, published poetry and won one of the country's major poetry prizes. And what my mother said to me was, why did I have to publish under my own name? Because as soon as people saw that I was Jewish, um, I could be in trouble. Mm. It had never, ever occurred to me. And they, they didn't look for anti-Semitism, my parents, you know. They weren't looking around. They didn't see anti-Semites. But when I was 13 my, and uh, went to a different high school, my mother said to me, um, I want you to learn German. And I said, why? Why should I learn German? I didn't want to learn German. And she said, in case the Nazis come to Australia... And I said, oh, yes, so I'll be able to say willkommen, Herr Nazi. And, you know, at 13, I thought it was ridiculous. But she felt she was saved in a way by speaking fluent German. 
and she desperately wanted to. So as a result, I can recite Goethe's Der Erlkönig. Did she uh, see any of the poetry that you wrote about her? Yes, she did. She saw the very, very first book in which, which has a photograph of her on the cover. Yeah. And this was my mother in the 1950s. I'll pass this around in a bit, but there's a poem I wanted to find. The, this was a, a photograph taken in the 1950s, 56. So that was... Um, my mother was uh, taken to Stutthof after Auschwitz, which was the last of the death camps to be liberated. This was ten years after she was liberated, this photograph. And she looks utterly remarkable. I mean, she was very beautiful. You know, she would walk down the street and every man's head would swivel. I was... Um I was rereading my way through this collection, this book, um, last week, and um, and I was kind of stopped short with this poem. Everything looked normal, and uh, I, we didn't talk about whether you'd be willing to read anything. Yeah, I don't. I oh, don't great! Mind She's so at easy. All. <laughs> this is called "Everything Looked Normal." We had a dog called Spot, and everything looked normal except for four locks on the front door, which didn't shut out much. Inside, life was lived at twice the rate. You couldn't deliberate, slow the pace. Small events became great occasions. No detail escaped intense observation. Anger crowded the house. Your numbered arm, your numb head, and hundreds of dead. The floor screeched, the cupboards groaned, the fridge shrieked, and the curtains hung, weighted with banished sadness. And you cleaned and cleaned, and ironed and sewed, and cooked and served, and everything looked normal. So what, a, what an environment to grow up in. You say something in Lola Bensky about... Um, um, there's a line um, where you talk about all the survivors and you talk about uh, people that... Uh, there were survivors of death camps and there were survivors of ghettos. And then referring to your generation... Um, who, the survivors of their parents. Yes. So um, what, are, um, what are some of the ways, some of the ways that you've had to um, change or look at what happened in your household growing up to make it possible for you to live the life that you've lived? And what of it are you carrying around in ways that you're aware of? Well, I think firstly... Although it may sound strange, and I wouldn't advocate, you know, anguish and tragedy for anyone, I think that because of my parents' past, I became a much more thoughtful person than I may have been. I understood that terrible things had happened 
and had had consequences for those people. I understood the danger of deciding that somebody else was not quite like you, that somebody else was a little different. And I understood at a very, very early age the danger of electing someone in power who, you know, ran that very short, slippery slope from somebody being different to being indifferent to them. And I was very, very aware of injustice. So I I think from that point of view, I grew up to be a much more serious person. And I also was lucky enough to have a father who had a great sense of humour. Even when he told me terrible stories about Auschwitz and Birkenau, he would laugh when he would tell me. And I think that I saw being able to laugh and being able to laugh at myself is my greatest virtue. Um, I saw it as crucial. You know, I think that growing up is a complicated thing for anybody, but I think it's multi-layered when you know your parents have suffered enormously. You know, and part of what happens, part of what they feel bleeds onto you. My mother was covered in shame. The things that happened to her during those six years were unspeakable, and I don't use the word unspeakable lightly. And she felt covered in shame. She felt dirty. She was so beautiful and she felt dirty. She couldn't get clean enough. And she cleaned the house over and over again. You know, two seconds after I was out of bed, my pyjamas were torn off me and off to be washed. And... I think that the the tension, the anguish, the agony makes it very hard to rebel, very, very hard to rebel. Um, My big rebellion was to not go to university um, and not be Perry Masonette. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was uh, one of my biggest rebellions and... um, not being slim was the other. That was the best I could manage. You know, and I think also that you inherit you inherit so much of their experience. You you know, I I'm just not a very calm person. Next to my mother I look like a Zen priest. But I'm not calm, I'm easily unnerved, I'm easily worried. Um, I find it very hard to be overly happy in case that happiness should bring upon it a suddenly great tragedy. And I think the knowledge that the world can change very quickly. When I was at the Monterey Pop Festival, it to me looked as though there was a revolution going on. It was a revolution of love, peace, brotherhood. And I really thought I was witnessing a revolution. I knew that the world could change overnight because 
it had changed overnight for my mother and my father. They, you know, in a very bad way, but I knew if it could change overnight in a very bad way, it could change overnight in a very good way. So there we were with love, peace and brotherhood all around us and, you know, people wearing this matching outfits to their dog and... <laughs> <laughs> I came from Australia. I'd never seen this American thing. You and your dog dressed in tartan. And, you know, everybody being so friendly, you know, just so friendly. And I really was, I was so high. I thought, oh, wow, I'm witnessing the world changing. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> I was um, not wrong, but I was... Also, it made me a very good journalist because I listened very carefully to people and I was not trained. And so I didn't know. At the time, this was, the, this was celebrity journalism in its infancy. That You know, now every magazine you pick up has a celebrity on the cover. But this was, you know, the beginning of celebrity journalism. So when I interviewed people, they didn't have... Uh, they didn't have a manager or public relations person. They didn't have a stylist. There was nobody there. Um, you were alone with them. And it was a very, very different world. And I was one of the very few females working in the world. Everybody in that world was male. The bands, the road managers, the managers, everybody, except for Linda Eastman and me. She went on to become Linda McCartney. But, um, you know, my parents, my seriousness um, made me ask relatively serious questions of the people I was interviewing when other people were asking them what their favourite colour was. I mean, who wants to know what someone else's favourite colour is? In, in Lola Bensky, in the fictionalised version of young Lily Brett at the Monterey Pop Festival, etc., What's fascinating in that book, uh, what makes, I, I think that book is brilliant and, I, and you start reading it and you're finding yourself hungry for the celebrity bits because we're trained to do that. And the pieces of interview that you give us are sort of Lola working through um, stuff while talking to celebrities, talking to, the, to Mick Jagger and Janis Joplin and Mama Cass. And, and she ends up, um, confiding in them things about her family and about her parents surviving Auschwitz and talking about the Holocaust to, um, to Jimi Hendrix. And um, the responses are so surprising and, and they humanize these legends in such a deep way. So I'm curious if that happened or if this is a piece of how you would like to imagine it. No, that, that was how it happened. And I only wrote about those people who uh, really moved me in a good way or, as in Jim Morrison's case, a bad way. Um, I think because I was untrained, um, I just went in and asked the sort of questions you would ask anybody if you're me. <laughs> like what? Well, I would just ask them if they got on well with their parents. <laughs> You know, I mean, I asked Mick Jagger 
all sorts of questions like that. Does he get on well with his parents? When I asked Janice Joplin, she said, oh, hell no. <laughs> and so then we had a fabulous conversation about both of us having difficult mothers. And I understood what she meant, you know, enormously. And she advised me that a bit of heroin would really calm me down. <laughs> You know, so that the sort of question, I was very surprised myself when I, I didn't read the articles I wrote until I'd finished the novel. And I was very surprised to see that I was writing um, all those years ago, I was obviously showing how Sonny answered all of Cher's questions. And I was 19 and I thought you would think I wouldn't have even noticed that. But... Um, you know, I was very surprised at what I noticed and what I asked. And, and Jimi Hendrix, who I had been... I had to watch him before. I had to be at his concert, a very small concert in London. I first saw him in London um, before I went backstage and interviewed him. And I had never, ever seen a man move like that. I, I didn't even know men could move like that. <laughs> And I was terrified. <laughs> and, oh, no, I mean, his pelvis and his tongue were <laughs> very worrying. <laughs> and I went um, backstage feeling very nervous. Um, and I sat on a stool, and I hate stools with a vengeance, but there was only a stool in the room, and it was in his dressing gown. There were just the two of us was in his dressing room and there were just the two of us and I started talking to him and I knew that he had had a hard life and I think just the fact that I knew he'd had a hard life and I started talking about his hard life and then I noticed that every few minutes he would say, are you comfortable? Because clearly I did not look comfortable perched on a stool and I would say, oh, yes. <laughs> and... Um, you know, so he talked about his life and then I told him that I understood exactly what he was talking about because this is what was my life. And he was completely fascinated and saw the relationship between his struggle with his family and mine. And then I got, it was very hot in his dressing room and I had ironed my hair straight. That was another thing I felt I had to do before I could leave the house, just go straight up my scalp with an iron. And it was very hot and I said, oh, my hair is starting to frizz with this heat. And he said, oh, I can tell you how to take care of that. <laughs> and he was such a sweet guy, a very soft voice. And lo and behold, he told me that he carried, he travelled with his hair rollers, which I was riveted by because, you know, frizzy hair is a big problem. And he explained to me how he rolled his hair and that if I did the same to mine, it would not frizz. And then he offered, he said, come round to my place tonight and I'll show you. And did you? No, I was terrified. But, but I already knew that he was a really, really nice human and very, very smart. But I met him three or four times in different cities over two years and he always reminded us, have you tried to roll this? 
<laughs> Mick Jagger in the book um, comes off very sympathetically, um, and and Lola and Mick end up in really rather a deep conversation about about Auschwitz. I think. Yes, we we talked about Auschwitz. We talked about. Um, Eating, he was way ahead of his time. He's telling me, you, you eat what you are, like you, you know, you are what you eat. And he didn't eat a variety of foods. I had never heard anybody say anything like that in my life. You know, for me, it was a grilled piece of something and a lettuce, and you didn't, didn't think about it. Um, but he explained to me um, that he didn't eat. He didn't eat this, he didn't eat that, he didn't eat that, but he did eat potatoes. And I said, well, you don't look like a potato. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, and also he showed me his kitchen. I think when somebody's not in awe of you, and it's very hard to be in awe of rock stars if both your parents have been in death camps. And also I think I must have been one of the few females who was much more interested in getting the... I wanted to do a better story than any of the guys did. I I really wanted to do a good story on them. And they all knew that I I was not asking questions to get into bed with them. I was much more interested in my tape recorder working and my Olivetti typewriter. So... I think that's why, I mean, he showed me his kitchen and coming from Melbourne, Australia, I mean, Americans have much bigger kitchens on the whole. And then if you've got a rich person, I had never seen a fridge that size. It probably paled by American-sized fridges. But then he told me he decorated it himself. And you've got to remember, like, I led a very sheltered life in many ways. I didn't know there was interior decoration. (laughs) I thought places just came as they were. So we had a... And the sort of questions I asked when I look back on it were, you know, I asked him what the relationship... What did he think the relationship was between sex and violence? Now, I had very little experience of sex and only experience of secondhand violence. I have no idea why I asked him that question, but he put together a very interesting answer about the hysteria and the sex appeal. So I think there was something about coming from a very serious place. I mean, my mother used to wake up screaming in her sleep regularly for for my whole youth. I thought everybody's mother did. Um, And when I was little, just sitting there, she was crying, crying, crying. I think you go into a situation like being a rock journalist. I mean, one of the first questions I asked Janis Joplin, who was sitting next to me, I just said, am I as fat as Mama Cass? And, And Janis Joplin said... Hell no. And I went, shh. You're listening to a conversation with Lily Brett and Commonweal host Erwin Keller. But for me it was, um, I felt I was just talking to peers. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a huge help for me. Let me ask you this. This is, I've been very curious about this and I haven't asked you. Um, So... Your relationship with uh, with Germany, let's say. 
This is the opening sentence of Too Many Men. It was written in 1994. I'm just pointing that out because... Okay, but, okay, because... Oh, well, I don't know that I would have written the same thing now. Oh, interesting. And nonetheless, your relationship with Germany's interest in your work is profound. Mm. And including this, that opens with... The last time Ruth Rothwax had been with a group of Germans, she had wanted to poke their eyes out. And it goes on um, really beautifully um, because it starts by sounding like something like a joke, but it's not. And Ruth is in an elevator with Germans and she... In Poland. um, And I won't make you read this one, but, um, but, but... in the books, you get Ruth's anger. You get, um, you know, her her hatred of what was done to her parents, and her uh, looking for looking for perpetrators all around her. Well, I think that what you get is her fear, and it comes out in bursts of anger, um, and. I think it was also at Elderly, these particular Germans were in an elevator and about to play golf in Gdansk. And I think you get her fear, um, which comes out as anger. I think, um, you know, all this many years later, I have, I can understand that point of view, but also I have an understanding being published in Germany for now almost 20 years and having had many, many German book tours, what I can see is that there is an entirely different generation grown up. The people who were the perpetrators almost don't exist and if they do, they're incredibly old. And also you have a government who made sure that they put, you know, very firmly put into the curriculum their own culpability and their own past. And I don't know of any other government that's done that. And you also have a a population that goes from probably my generation down um, who suffered in a very parallel way that the children of survivors suffered. You know, the children of the perpetrators felt the same shame. I felt covered in my mother's shame and I could see the shame of Germans and they grew up with the same mystery. You know, nothing was ever told to you in a very straightforward way. Everything was told to you in bits and pieces that didn't add up. You know, they added up over decades, but they didn't add up instantly. Um, and so the, this, these German generations, they lived wondering what their parents or their grandparents did or didn't do. They felt massive guilt. They couldn't travel and say they were German. They always hoped they were being mistaken for somebody else, anybody but Germans. And I really think... They suffered. I feel their suffering and I feel an enormous bond with them. In, this, in the putting together the stage version of uh, Chutzpah and the second production of it and the production that's coming and the 
can we say? Possibly a musical version after that. I mean, what has been your experience in, in the collaboration? Has it felt like a, any kind of healing? No, because the healing has already happened. I mean, I feel very at home in Germany. I feel an enormous sympathy with um, younger Germans and, you know, Germans sort of from my age downwards. I can see what a mess their lives were. You know, I had, I had a journalist interview me in Hamburg one year and she was so aggressive to me and my publicist came in, you know, publicists come in after a certain period of time and you have a signal with it that means, you know, get me out of here or I'm okay. Um, and I clearly wanted to leave the interview and um, I said to the, my publicist, you know, I don't know why she was so awful but she was just so aggressive to me so this article is going to be a, a write-off and it was in a very large circulation newspaper and it came out the next day and it was fabulous and I thought, what, what was the reason for this? And it turns out that she called me and asked me, could we have coffee together? And my mother was sent to Stutthof, as I mentioned, after Auschwitz, when the Hungarians were sent into Auschwitz, the production at Auschwitz just couldn't keep up. You know, they were burning 12,000 bodies a day and they just couldn't keep up. You know, and the Hungarians were all healthy, so they had you know, had a lot of body fat, which caused more issues. Um, and so my mother was one of a trainload of Jewish women shipped to Gdansk. And lo and behold, this journalist's grandfather was the commandant of Gdansk, wow. of Stutthof near Gdansk. And that's what killed her. And her mother adored her father. And she, whatever she did, she could not get her mother to see what her father had orchestrated. And so she no longer spoke to her mother. And so her life was a mess. It's very messy to think you come from people who can murder, you know, murder masses and can shoot women and children with no compunction. So I, I, feel, um, I feel just an enormous sympathy and bond with um, with German people in many, many ways. I, I wonder how much, you know, your writing is a gift to them as well because, you know, the, the effects of, of having had parents who went through that runs through all of your books. Um, but you also write with such, you write with humor, so much humor and so much love that... I can imagine it giving them permission to enter into that world in a way that could be very frightening or very threatening if it was written in a different way. Oh, I think that I think I've enabled them to open dialogues with their families. Um, many, many people have told me that. They've told me I've made a difference to whole families, you know, by being able to discuss it in a very different way. And basically, I, I think that most of Europe misses the Jewish sense of humour. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really lacking in most countries. You try to go to Switzerland. <laughs> well, you and I have talked about this. We've both visited Poland and felt 
how it, um, we both experienced it, I think, as a place that felt empty. Yes. Like you feel the incredible absence of this huge population of hundreds of years of culture. Um, you know, I visited my, uh, one of my ancestral shtetls, shtetlach, and, and you look down the street and you can see on the, on the doorposts, you know, where there had been a mezuzah, right? And, and how, and, and you wonder, how, how does that, you know, and this is a country where they didn't have a curriculum around what happened during the war. And what they we, still don't. And they still don't. And, 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 you know, and this is a town that had been 80% Jewish. And there's a, uh, I bought a little tourist brochure, a little booklet about the history of the town. And Jews are mentioned once. And, uh, but the whole country feels, but the country feels empty and sad. Sure, and uh, most of the, especially in a city like Lodge, an industrial city, um, almost all of the really beautiful architecture was built by Jews. I mean, there's just a lot lacking. And a lot of countries know they miss their Jews. I mean, Poland's still selling wooden figurines of Jews. That's the closest they can come. <laughs> and we all have very long noses and they're carrying money bags. <laughs> I know, they're still for sale in the square in Krakow. Um, it's quite extraordinary. When was the last time you were in a synagogue? Here you are. <laughs> Quite a while ago, God. What's your what's your what what is your uh, what's your relationship with religion? Because everything about you is Jewish. Everything about oh, your yeah. experience of life. Oh no, there's. I what's your so experience Jewish. of religion? I could not be more Jewish. I haven't told you that my son's a doctor yet. <laughs> but well, my experience of being, <laughs> of being Jewish is that I am extremely Jewish. I'm, actually sometimes feel quite horrified at how Jewish I am. Um, but I grew up without any religious education because both my parents came from Orthodox homes and they both, after the war, separately decided there was no God. And so my mother, at incredibly unpredictable, random moments, like when she's washing two saucepans and my mother in the kitchen, there was a lot of volume going on there, um, would say, there is no God, there is no God. And she was not speaking to anyone in particular, I think to herself, that there was no God. And my father felt exactly the same. And so... I was not allowed to join any Jewish organisations. I wasn't allowed. We lived in a street that where you could walk to the synagogue, prime piece of real estate, not in itself, just because of the synagogue. And I was not allowed to go to the synagogue. My parents were so anti-religion and when I begged to go to the synagogue, my mother said, you only want to meet boys. And I didn't. I just wanted to see the kids I went to school with. Um, so I grew up feeling almost guilty if I ever entered a synagogue and then felt unable. The, the synagogues I felt most comfortable in are in Poland. There are a few beautiful little synagogues, Kazimierz, the Ramu Synagogue in Kazimierz near Krakow, 
is very, very beautiful. And that's where I go to synagogue. I have wanted to join a synagogue for the last 15, 20 years. I ring around Manhattan where I live and I make sure that, you know, you know, intermarriage is success, you know, is, is acceptable to them, you know, being gay is acceptable to them. I ask all the right questions. The, the synagogue sounds perfect for me and I cannot go. And I think I feel a level of disloyalty to my parents, you know. Mm. They wanted me to marry somebody Jewish. Where on earth I was supposed to meet them <laughs> wasn't it never pointed out to me. And, of course, if you go to synagogue now, there's always the risk that your husband will become Jewish. Oh, yes, no. He wants to be a Jew. So, <laughs> badly. He knows, you know, a dozen words of Yiddish and uses them frequently. And, and, and the custom is for someone to be refused three times, and Lily has taken that upon herself <laughs> to do. Yeah, I mean, they said, you'll have to come with him. And I said, mm-mm, not me. But um, it's, it's been a very strange thing because I've written quite a lot about my lack of belief and my inability to believe. And I wrote a, a piece in the German newspaper, Die Zeit, about a Catholic church that I fell in love with in Cologne. And I have theologians write to me. I never in my wildest dreams thought I would have correspondence with theologians, always Catholic and they all try to convince me that I am not an atheist and that underneath this exterior, I do believe. It's really interesting because I, I would love to. I can would you describe, love to believe. Can you describe for us what it is that you experience when you're in, the, in that church in Cologne? Well, it's a very um, unadorned church. It's the largest Catholic church next to the Cologne Cathedral. And it's definitely for the community. They have a lot of community things going on there. Um, they have readings. They have It's a cultural centre. And there's something about how unadorned it is. And it's a very spiritual building. It feels spiritual to me and it feels mine. I visit it every time I'm in Germany. I love it. I just go and sit in it. It's really weird. That, um, that I love a Catholic church. Now I go into Catholic churches and light candles and my mother, she'd be horrified. Not because it's Catholic, because it's a church. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel it's one of the disadvantages of having two parents who could not tolerate you know, and they both told me very specific examples of when they decided there was no God. I mean, A, it's very hard to believe in God if you have watched your favourite niece die, if you have, you know, I've had so many, many of your, all your immediate family die. But my mother said... It was when she watched a baby being thrown by the so-called out of the window of the so-called hospital in the lodge ghetto because they were emptying the hospital and tossed the baby out the window. 
and a newborn, and my father said it was when he watched two Gestapo officers play football with a baby until it was pulp. And he said after that, he said he could understand that maybe adults, there were reasons why they should suffer, but he said newborn babies, he couldn't, and he wouldn't ever. You know, he lives on the Lower East Side of Manhattan where there are still a lot of elderly Orthodox Jews and young Orthodox Jews, they're the worst. They want to take my dad straight to synagogue. And, and, a, and a rabbi visits my father every Friday and my dad loves it because he gets to speak Yiddish. Mm. But um, when the rabbi talks about God, my father says, hey, hey, enough. You know, he's, he's not going to, he said to me, I'm not going to start believing now. Do you miss Yiddish? I wish I could speak it as well as I used to be able to speak it. I think it's one of the most beautiful languages. And when I hear Yiddish songs, I just start weeping because they're the songs I heard as a child. And they were, all, they were all sad songs. There was a song I cannot find anywhere called Oi, Mottle, Mottle. And, and the whole story is about, you know, poor Mottle. The rabbi said he's not studying. They're all tales of woe. There isn't one that's uplifting. We're running, starting to run out of time. Why don't we take a couple of questions? I was just wondering if you've ever been to Israel and, and if you or your family's ever done an oral history. Like well, um, yes, I, I've been to Israel twice, not for a long time, and I really would like to go again. Um, when I first went... I was 18, and in Melbourne, the Jewish community, everybody knew everybody else. I mean, you were special to that community because we all lived near each other. When I went to Israel, I thought, everybody's going to say hello to me because I'm a Jew. Nobody was even that friendly. I was going, I'm Jewish. <laughs> but no, I very much would like to go again. And I have... Uh, I have talked to my parents a lot about their past. I was lucky to start doing it very early and ask a lot of questions very early. So um, Yale University was one of the first universities in America to do audio-video interviews. And in Australia, we rented a camera and I interviewed both my parents for the Yale archives. But um, I always wanted to know what happened to them when most people didn't want to know and didn't didn't want to talk about it anyway. My parents' friends thought there was something wrong with me because I asked those questions. But I'm really glad I've got those tapes and my kids have copies of everything. It took me about 15 years after my mother died to be able to look at her on screen. You know, I still can't do it very often. Well, no, well, she was a really smart, smart, smart um, young woman, very, very smart. And she, her best friend was Jewish and she loved their family. Um, she, she thought they, well, she, that family was much better off. She, she was much better off. She went to shul with them. I said to her, that's more than I ever did. <laughs> So if you want to find out more about Janis Joplin and her shul-going past, you can um, 
read Lily's book. I'll, I'll leave these out for people to uh, look at. We weren't able to get copies to sell tonight, but I'm sure you can get them online. Is there a special place you'd like to recommend people? To oh, just, just Amazon. Just Amazon is fine. So this is uh, Lola Bensky, and this is, uh, includes all of the um, interviews with uh, the rock and rollers. Oh, but, you know, you should know that this place is a particularly... Um, this is a propitious site for an interview with you because besides, it was built as the Katadi Ladies Improvement Club <laughs> in 1910. So it was sort of there was a certain well, element of <laughs> women's or at least ladies empowerment that happened here. And then in the 70s and 70s and 80s, 70s and 80s, this was um, a very rockin' um, place called the Katadi Cabaret, and wow. a lot of the a lot of the uh, big rock and roll stars of the 1980s came through here on the way. Um, and when this became the synagogue, they had to actually um, decide how to fill the, the gunshot, the gun holes, bullet holes in the ceiling. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a kind of legendary rock and roll huh. space here. That was the booth up how there. fabulous. Yeah, the green room over there. Um, other books of Lily's that you might want to look at. Um, oops, Too Many Men is a story of Ruth taking her father to Poland and hearing the voice of the Auschwitz Commandant. Beautiful book. And its sequel, which is the one that's really caught fire in, uh, in the stage world, is You Gotta Have Balls, which is the sequel to Too Many Men. But do you have to read Too Many Men first? No. You don't need to. So you can read this. It's when, uh, it's a little bit when, um, when, the, uh, when Ruth's father's uh, recent past shows up in New York, catches up with him, and um, funny and exciting mayhem ensues, much yes. to Ruth's chagrin. Yes, the <laughs> other aspect of my father in real life is that he loves women, especially blondes and especially, especially busty blondes. <laughs> <laughs> The, um, well, one of them ju just was screened. You Gotta Have Balls was screened um, in, in all the German-speaking countries as a television movie in September, and um, Too Many Men is currently in production to be made in English. When can we hope to see that? Oh, I don't know. That's, it takes an eternity in my experience. Um, but... Who's going to play Lily is the question. I don't know. Do we get to vote? No, I don't even get <laughs> Who should to play vote. Lily? Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon. Yeah. Minnie Driver. Minnie Driver. Yeah, she would be good because uh, in Too Many Men, uh, Ruth Rothwax is only, I think, 40, 45 or something like that. I never make them exactly my age. <laughs> I wish shave a few years off. <laughs> but you got to throw them off track. I know, but it's ridiculous. Suddenly my real age seems way too old, but two or three years younger. Well, that's not bad. <laughs> it's completely illogical. Lily, thank you for being here with us and talking to oh, us about your pleasure. fascinating, fascinating life. Um, thank you, and uh, I want to thank everybody for being here. Again, this is the New School at Commonweal the new Sonoma County branch here in Katadi, California. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with Lily Brett 
and Commonweal guest host, Erwin Keller. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook 